Okay, so uh, how many of you are excited to study hemardiology this morning? Will is, okay, good. How many of you know what hemardiology is? There's a clue. Yes. It is indeed the study of sin, the doctrine of sin. And uh, so that's our topic for this, uh, the remainder of this year. Um, so let me ask this. How many of you would prefer to study, say, the doctrine of God or the doctrine of Christ or of salvation as opposed to the study of sin? I think perhaps uh, most of us would, would say so. Well, I hope to convince you today, and if you're already convinced, I hope to drive home the conviction of the importance of the study of sin, such that you will find yourself eager to look into this doctrine and really eager to see sin in your own life and see how a proper biblical understanding of sin affects everything that you believe. Every major doctrine that we study has implications for much of how we think, believe, and live. For example, a study of the doctrine of God should cause a believer to increase in his love for God, to increase in his sense of awe and wonder at the majesty of God, to increase in uh, his appreciation for the comfort that we have in the love of God, increase in his sense, increase uh, in our trust in God's faithfulness, increase in our hope in God's promises. And likewise, the study of the church should increase the believer's love for the church, for Christ's bride. It should increase our love for one another as fellow partakers in the glorious grace of God and increase our commitment to the mission and ministry of the church. And so also then, a study of sin should affect many things. It should cause us to grow in our hatred of it. It should stir us in strong antipathy and anger against it. It should cause grief to us as we consider the offense that it is against God. It should produce mourning. It should provoke repentance for our own sins. It should create compassion for other sinners. And as well as an increased patience with them as God is patient with us in our sin. It should generate genuine sobriety at the consideration of the consequences of sin as well as a sincere gratitude for grace, genuine love for God, and an earnest longing for holiness. So I hope that through this study, all of us will grow in our understanding of sin so that we will have a clear view of sin, as clear a view as God will be pleased to give us. I want to see sin as God sees it, as utterly sinful. So let's start then with this basic question, what is sin? And throughout the uh, next seven or eight studies at least, we'll be utilizing the Westminster Shorter Catechism 
to prompt and to outline some of our thoughts. Uh, and the Catechism asks this question, question number 14, what is sin? So I want to ask if anybody knows how the Catechism answers that question. Okay. Uh, well, the answer is that sin is any want of conformity to or any transgression of the law of God. Sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Or in a more modern formulation, uh, sin is disobeying or not conforming to God's law in any way. Now this is a very simple and succinct answer to a very complicated, complex, and even mysterious subject. And so throughout the next 20 weeks or so, we will expand on this as we go. In fact, in one sense, the whole course will be an exposition, an expansion of this definition and an exploration of its implications. <laughs> when we talk about sin in these terms, transgression of law, we should not think merely in forensic or legal terms as we might be inclined to. Sin is far more than that. It is personal. And it's personal because God's law is personal. On a human level and with human laws, we can distinguish the law from the person who wrote it, or from the legislative body that passed it, or from the officer who enforces it, or from the judge who rules in light of it. But these distinctions are not possible with God and His law. And that is because God's moral law is grounded in and is an expression of God's moral character. It is as good, righteous, and unchangeable as His own perfect righteous character. And it cannot be separated from Him. So if sin is any lack of conformity or transgression of God's law, we must also think of sin in personal terms. <clears throat> Every violation against God's law is a violation against His person. Every legal offense is also a personal offense. <clears throat> so when we say this, we don't diminish or we don't deny the legal aspect. It is, in fact, the law of Yahweh, the sovereign creator and righteous judge, to whom all of us will give an account. But we don't restrict our understanding simply to abstract legal concepts. We also don't limit our understanding of the law, and therefore of sin, to matters of outward obedience. The law addresses the whole man, not just actions, but thoughts and attitudes as well. Therefore, sin also has to do with our whole being, with actions, yes, but with attitudes and intentions and desires. Consider how quickly and really how vastly this meaning of the law is opened up when we consider Jesus' own teaching as he summed up the law in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. 
And there he was asked what the greatest commandment was. And to that he responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. That's the law. That's the Ten Commandments summed up. Yes, we are called to obey the law. And sin is a transgression of the law. But obedience to the law is not some impersonal or indifferent matter. Conformity to the law is loving God and loving others. So we can't abstract the law from the one who gave it or from the purpose for which he gave it. Let's look at how Paul describes the law in Romans 13, 8 to 10. And can somebody read that for me? Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, thanks, Lloyd. Now, when we consider, then, the commandments of God, we realize that they call us to a wholehearted commitment to love and to glorify God and a self-giving service to our fellow human beings. And it is any transgression of this law of love or any lack of conformity to this life of godly self-sacrificing service to others that the Bible calls sin. We're not talking about some minor violation of an abstract legal code, but a deeply personal offense against the God who is love and who calls us to love in order to make his glory known. Again, when we consider Jesus' teaching on the law, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, we see him tracing out the implications of certain commandments that are stated very simply, but have profound and extensive application. How deep does the sin of adultery go? Lust in the heart. And what is the, the root from which it springs? A corrupt heart. This is adultery in seed form. Murder is tied to the anger from which it arises. Well, how does loving your neighbor function in keeping you from lusting, adultery, or from anger, murder? And it's not merely by suppressing those urges. That's not love. Love genuinely desires and deliberately promotes the good of our neighbor. The heart must be purged of sin and must be filled with love to fulfill that law. Love does no harm to neighbor. It doesn't desire to possess or take or damage what belongs to another, whether life or spouse or property or reputation. 
Love not only doesn't steal from another, but love positively wants them to have and to enjoy what they have. So, for example, love will cause us also to seek to protect our neighbor's property and to prevent its theft or destruction as far as we're able. The same could be said of the rest of the Decalogue. While much of it's stated in the form of prohibition, you shall not, the corresponding positive prescriptions are full of promise and blessing and good fruit for those who obey them. It's important that we see this high purpose and this positive function of the law. Paul says that the law is holy and righteous and good. Not only for the evil it protects us from, but for the positive good that it promotes. And it's especially important that we understand this. The love which sums up the law is not determined merely by good feelings or kind intentions toward others. Love is defined by the law of God. And like the law, it is aimed at promoting conformity to the moral character of God and thus promoting the good of others as positively provided for us by God in His law. And we must understand too that this, that, that sin, therefore, is the opposite of what is good for others. And it's destructive to their good. So love can never promote or be complacent about sin, either ours or that of others. We can never go along to get along or be complicit in the sin of others or approve evil in the name of love or tolerance. Biblical love will actively promote biblical living. And as difficult as it can be, we must talk about sin. It's the loving thing to do. And this fact is critical to remember, especially in our present cultural circumstances, when every attempt is made to publicly silence the voice of the church and of Christians so that nothing negative can be said about our culture's wholesale pursuit of their sin, especially sexual and specifically homosexual sin. They're increasingly demanding, in essence, that we not seek their good, that we not speak the truth, and that we not love them by showing and declaring to them a more excellent way a life of repentance toward God and of faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, a life of love. And while it has always been the case that sinful men and women will be hostile to this message, it's the public nature of the current opposition and its increased hostility and the legal support that it now enjoys that present a new and formidable challenge to the church in America In the face of this public pressure, many who bear the name of Christ will have neither the biblical conviction nor the courage to speak the truth in love to our neighbors 
being willing to call sin, sin, and calling for repentance from sin and sin's destructive consequences. The world calls for love and tolerance, but it will not tolerate the message of God's love. The idea of love, their idea of love, is to allow them to pursue their sin with wild abandon and don't dare mention the consequences. God's love, which is the source and means and the goal of our message in both law and gospel, this biblical love is condemned by the world as hate. And everything is turned on its head. This is increasingly the context in which we and our children are called to live lives of love as summed up in the law and as exemplified by Christ. This emboldened hostility that we see around us makes it increasingly difficult to discuss sin in our culture. But there are other somewhat related reasons that discussing sin is difficult. And one would be that it's just plain unpleasant. Nobody really wants to hear how evil they are. And our culture is so narcissistic that it isn't tolerated. One theologian said that to speak of humans as sinners is almost like screaming out profanity and obscenity in a very formal, dignified, genteel meeting or even in a church. It's, it's just not done. <clears throat> Another reason that it's so difficult to discuss this is that increasingly the biblical idea of sin is a foreign concept to more and more people. Human problems are, ba- are uh, blamed on social or psychological or environmental or genetic causes, but not on sin. Without the transcendent God as our reference point for ethics and for morality, we have only ourselves as our standard And there is no one but ourselves and other humans to whom we're responsible and accountable. And humans are very accommodating to sin, especially when God's voice has been silenced. Thirdly, while many may retain a category of sins, plural, into which they place whatever happens to be displeasing to them, say intolerance or homophobia, these are the intolerable things, uh, they see that these, they see sins as individual wrong acts that can logically be separated from the person. And what they want no part of is the idea of sin as an inherent condition and an indwelling power by which we are, they are enslaved and controlled and from which they cannot escape. But all of these difficulties of discussing sin, at the same time, are evidence of the necessity of discussing sin. And those who have a biblical understanding of sin have a biblical obligation to help others to see sin as God sees it, for all are accountable to Him. Now I want to talk... um, a bit more about the interrelationship between the doctrine of sin and other doctrines. As I mentioned earlier, our understanding of sin will affect our understanding of everything else. How we view sin will directly affect how we view God and vice versa. How we view sin will affect how we view the scriptures, 
It will affect how we understand redemption, justification, sanctification, adoption. Our understanding of sin will deeply affect how we view the church. It will affect how we share the gospel, if we share the gospel. <clears throat> and it will affect our understanding of repentance and of grace. <clears throat> it will profoundly affect how we understand sanctification and how we long for the consummation and our final glorification. All of these things will affect and be affected by our understanding of sin. And our love for all of these things, for God, for the gospel, the scriptures, the church, the new heavens and earth, our love for these things will be proportional to our hatred for sin. We need to face right up front and we need to confess that we really don't hate sin nearly as much as we ought. And this is partially because we don't see sin as we ought. And this is largely due to the fact that we don't see God as we ought. We don't see sin as a blight against the backdrop of His perfect purity. We don't see it as blackness in the light of the burning beauty of His holiness. We don't see it as insolence flaunting itself in the face of his majestic authority. As foolishness vaunting itself against his inscrutable wisdom. As selfish arrogance making demands of his unfathomable love. As puny weakness challenging his infinite power. We just don't see sin as we ought. And because we don't see sin as we ought, we don't see Christ as we ought. We don't see the cross as we ought. We don't rejoice in his work as we ought. And we are just not thankful as we ought to be. In other words, our attitude towards sin is itself sin. <clears throat> we fall woefully short of even grasping the nature of our offense. So when we say sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God, this ought to begin to fill out how we think about it. <coughs> I want to talk a bit more about the sinfulness of sin. Um, now, we talked about the fact that God's law cannot be separated from God himself when we talk about sin. And this fact is what enables us to begin to, utter, to, to grasp the utter sinfulness of sin. <clears throat> King David, loved by God and admired by millions is also infamous for his sin. His idleness led to lust. His lust led to adultery. His adultery led to murder. But he's also known for his repentance 
after long resisting and hiding the truth, after all the damage and grief that his sin had brought to others, when he came to the point of brokenness and confessed his sin to the Lord, he identified the central truth about his sin. And what did he say? For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David's sins against others were very real and had very real consequences. But he knew it was God's law that he transgressed, that it was his authority that he defied. It was his will that he violated. And while he hid it from others for a time, it was never hidden from God. That was the true nature of his sin and all sin. All sin is first and foremost against God. And therein lies its ultimate sinfulness. When we sin, whether in thought, word, or deed, we are defying God. God is the ultimate standard for how we are to live. Our lives are be, to be for His glory and pleasure and according to His purpose and will and in obedience to His word. To sin is to reject His purposes in favor of our own. To pursue our pleasure apart from Him. It is rejecting God's glory as an unworthy pursuit. <clears throat> and considering, <clears throat> excuse me, considering our own self-serving pleasures as our ultimate concern. Sin is a deeply personal offense against God. And what's more, because God is omnipresent, all of our sins are committed in His immediate presence. So to sin is to provoke God to His very face. It's like shaking your fist at Him and Insolently, insolently daring him to do something about it. Listen to what J.I. Packer says about sin. When the Bible speaks of sin, it means precisely an offense against God. We shall never know what sin really is till we learn to think of it in terms of our relationship with God. Sin is going contrary to God retreating from God, turning one's back on God, defying God, ignoring God. It is refusing to let the Creator be God so far as you're concerned, living not for Him, but for yourself, loving and serving and pleasing yourself without reference to the Creator, trying to be as far as possible independent of Him, taking yourself out of His hands holding him at arm's length, keeping the reins of life in your own hands, acting as if you and your pleasure were the end to which all things else, God included, must be made to function as a means. Sin is exalting oneself against the Creator, withholding the homage due to Him, and putting oneself in His place as the ultimate standard or reference in all of life's decisions. The position that sin takes 
in opposition to God is what constitutes its sinfulness. Now, in looking at how I wanted to uh, address this, one problem I had was narrowing down my sources and deciding how I could use them. Um, The Puritans, who were called physicians of the soul uh, because of their skill and care in applying the scriptures to a vast host of, of spiritual ailments that befall sinful man, their effectiveness in this was related to their skill as expert anatomists of sin. That is, they understood the anatomy of sin in a profound way and were very laborious and thorough in dissecting and analyzing its nature and its form, both to strengthen resistance to it as well as to do scriptural, spiritual surgery and to provide the healing balm of the gospel most effectively. So I had a number of wonderful sources um, that I had thought would be helpful to uh, utilize. And the problem was they were just so thorough and so deep and so rich. Um, uh, really could, could spend multiple sessions just talking about um, a couple of them. But what I want to do in the next few minutes is I'm just going to refer to several books by different Puritan authors as they address sin, particularly sin in this context, as it is opposed to God. So, this book by, Howard, by Ralph uh, Venning, uh, The Sinfulness of Sin, begins by identifying eight ways in which sin is contrary to God. <clears throat> and while we'll only touch on a bit of what, what they had to say about it, you'll see, um, again, the, the thoroughness of their approach and um, hope that it will really spark in you uh, a sense of the sinfulness of sin. Um, he says in here, the, the sinfulness of sin not only appears from, but consists in this, that it is contrary to God. Indeed, it's contrariety, it is contrariety and enmity itself. <clears throat> so his first point is that sin is contrary to the nature of God. Specifically, he has in mind God's holiness. Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And he notes here that this holiness is the very thing that God glories in. That he is holy, even glorious in holiness. He references Habakkuk 1.13 where it says that he is without iniquity and is of purer eyes than to behold or approve iniquity. And then he says this, As in God there is no evil, so in sin there is no good. God is the chiefest of goods and sin is the chiefest of evils. 
As no good can be compared with God for goodness, so no evil can be compared with sin for evil. Then it talks about the fact that sin is contrary to all the names and attributes of God. And he goes through a number of them. He talks about it being that it would depose the sovereignty of God as much as it is able. Attempts to dethrone God. It denies God's self-sufficiency. Challenges His justice. Disowns His omniscience. Despises the riches of His goodness. And he goes on. He says, in short, sin is the dare of God's justice. The rape of His mercy. The jeer of His patience. The slight of His power. The contempt of His love. Then talks about sin as contrary to the works of God. And says this, God is good and does good. Psalm 119.68 Sin is evil and does evil. Indeed, it does nothing else. So sin and its works are contrary to God and His works. And then sin is contrary to the law and the will of God. It says, There is not one of His laws which it has not broken, and endeavored to make void and to none effect. It is not only a transgression of, but also a contradiction to the will of God. <clears throat> and he talks about sin as contrary to the image of God which man, in which man was made. Now sin is clean contrary to this image. As much unlike it as deformity and ugliness is, is unlike to handsomeness and beauty. As darkness is to light, as hell is to heaven. Yes, there is more also. Sin is the devil's image. Never was a child more like his father than a sinner is like the devil. Sin has the nature, the complexion, the air, the features of the devil. It's very behavior is of the devil. <clears throat> talks about sin as contrary to the people and children of God. Sin is always warring against the seed of God in them. The flesh lusts against the spirit, Galatians 5.17, and wars against their souls, 1 Peter 2.11. The evil and this evil and envious sin is bent also on hindering all it can the comfort, welfare, and happiness of the saints. Then sin is contrary to and set against the glory of God. If sin's desires might take place, there should not be a person or thing by whom and by which God should be pleased or glorified. And sin contrary and opposite to the being and existence of God. 
He references 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 and says, Sin keeps garrisons and strongholds against God. It strives with and fights against God. And if its power were as great as its will is wicked, it would not suffer God to be. Can you find, and then he asks this question in consideration of these things, can you find it in your heart to hug and embrace such a monster as this? Will you love that which hates God and which God hates? God forbid. Will you join yourself to that which is nothing but contrariety to God and all that is good? That's just just touching on a a few things that he had to say in that regard. And um, I want to look at some things that uh, Jeremiah Burroughs in this book had to say, the evil of evils. You get an idea, they consider uh, sin in its proper biblical light here. Um, <clears throat> he, um, again, deals most specifically in what I'm going to look at, with the evil of sin as it is opposed to God. And he spends about uh, 80 pages or so dealing with, with uh, this issue under uh, these main headings, that sin is most opposite to God's nature. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, that sin is opposite in its working against God. Sin wrongs God more than anything else. And sin strikes at God's being. Now I'm going to look at just that first one. Sin is most opposite to God's nature. Um, And these are the categories he deals with here. The first is that nothing is directly contrary to God but sin. The nature of sin is so opposite to God that there is nothing so contrary to Him as sin. God has nothing but sin contrary to Him. God has no object that He can look upon contrary to Himself in all the world but sin alone. Therefore, sin is more evil, there there is more evil in sin than in any other thing. Secondly, it says sin is so opposite to God that if it were possible that the least drop of it could get into God's nature, God would instantly cease to be God. It being so contrary that he cannot have the slightest portion of it. Therefore also we have to have holy thoughts of God seeing sin so infinitely contrary to his nature. Thirdly, he says, so opposite is sin to God that 
if God should be but the cause of any sin in any other, he would instantly cease to be God. <clears throat> and um, that, that he cannot properly be the author, but such is the evil of sin that if God were the author of it, he could not be God. Fourthly, such is the evil of sin that if God should but approve of it and like it, he should, he should be like it when another has committed it, even should he like it when another has committed it, even that would cause him to cease to be God. Wicked men are ready to think that because God is patient and long-suffering, that he is of the same judgment as themselves. And he cites Psalm 50, verse 21. Because I held my peace, you thought that I was altogether such as you are. But I will reprove you. And he says, Oh, know that when you have any such thoughts of God as these, you blaspheme God. If that were true, that you are what you are thinking, that God approved your wicked ways, God must cease to be God. God would be God no longer. And how is this so? Because then God would not be infinitely holy. And holiness is God's being. And if God is not infinitely holy, he is not God at all, but cease to be, which is impossible and a blasphemous thing to think. Fifthly, such is the evil of sin, so opposite to God's nature, that if God did not hate sin as much as he does, if he did not hate sin as much as he does, he would cease to be God. <clears throat> if God did not hate sin as much as he does, if it could be conceived that God could hate sin somewhat less than he does, he would cease to be God. And how is this? <clears throat> if he did not hate it as much as he does, then he did not hate it infinitely. And if God's hatred for sin were less than it is, it would be but a finite hatred. And if it were a finite hatred, then God could not be infinitely holy. For infinite holiness must have an infinite hatred against sin and then in concluding if these things are true then there is indeed a great evil in sin he goes on to point out several corollaries to this or consequences or, uh, of this which I think will be helpful to us to consider <clears throat> And the first is this, as we consider this wickedness, this evil of evils. It appears by this that but few men know what they do when they sin. And isn't that true? We just don't really get it. <clears throat> The second corollary is the absolute necessity of our mediator 
being God and man. One that we need a mediator, but that we need one infinite and yet in our flesh. The third corollary. Few are humbled for sin as they should be. And I think we recognize that. The fourth corollary, that we should admire the patience of God in seeing so much sin in the world and yet bearing it. The fifth corollary, from this then, we see a way to break your hearts for sin. And also to keep you from temptation. And then, he he has several more, but I'll just read this one more. If sin is this sinful, it should teach us not only to be troubled for our own sins, but also for the sins of others. Now, I had... Um, some stuff from Thomas Watson I had wanted to go over from his book about uh, a body of divinity which is really an exposition of the Westminster Shorter Catechism and we really don't have time uh, to do that at this point Um, let me see if I I'm just going to read He, he, he makes a number of very profound thoughts, uh, profound points. I'm just going to read the the basic headings of them. And he looks at the heinousness of sin um, seen under four primary headings. The first is sin, the evil of sin is seen in its origin from where it comes from, that it gets its pedigree from hell, that it is of the devil. The second, he says that sin is evil in the nature of it. And we've looked at a lot of that. But he talks about it being a defiling thing. That it's grieving God's spirit. That it's a rebellion against God. That it's an act of disingenuity and unkindness in light of God's mercy and patience. That sin is a disease. That sin is an irrational thing. That is a painful thing. And that it is, I don't know if I had, uh, and that it is, um, <clears throat> sin is the only thing that God has antipathy against. His third main point is, see the evil of sin in the price paid for it. It costs the blood of God to expiate it. He quotes Augustine saying, O man, consider the greatness of your sin by the greatness of the price paid for it. O what an accursed thing is sin that Christ should die for it. The evil of sin is not so much seen that 1,000 are damned for it or however many billion, but as that Christ died for it. fourthly then sin is evil in its effects sin has degraded 
Sorry about that. Sin has degraded us of our honor. Considering the glory in which man was made and the position he was given, sin has cast us down. Second, sin disquiets the peace of the soul for whatever defiles, disturbs. Uh, Third point under that, sin produces all temporal evil. And then fourthly, sin unrepented of brings damnation. And then he has three primary applications that we should see how deadly an evil sin is and how strange that anyone should love it. Secondly, do anything but sin. Oh, hate sin. There is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest bodily evils that can befall us. And then third, is sin so great and evil, then how thankful should you be to God if He has taken away your sin? Well, I wish I had more time to explore some of some of those ideas a little further, but hopefully this gives you a taste for the importance of the topic and that um, you'll be more motivated to, to look into this, um, to, to not only see <clears throat> sin as God sees it, but be better equipped to see the glory of the gospel and what Christ has done for us to uh, cleanse us of our sin and purge us of it. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we cannot thank you enough. And as we've said, we barely begin to grasp what sin is in your sight.